This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Kirk Megu, host of Politics and Polemics on the New Books Network. I also host my own podcast called Independent Thought and Freedom, where I interview some of the most interesting people from around the world who are shaking up politics, economics, society, and ideas. You can find it in the iTunes Store or on any one of your favorite podcast providers. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, Are you an academic that wants to get heard nationally? Check out my free training on three steps how to use your intellectual authority to become a media personality at becomeapublicintellectual.com. That's becomeapublicintellectual.com. You can find the links below. And now, on to this week's episode. Hi, today my guest is Greg Burris author of the book, The Palestinian Idea, Film, Media, and the Radical Imagination. It's published by Temple University Press in 2019. Welcome, Greg. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, it's it's great to have you here. I'm calling you from sunny Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, It's morning here. Uh, Where are you right now? I am in sunny Beirut, Lebanon. Okay, great, great. Well, can you uh, please tell us a bit more about yourself, how you became interested in the subject? And um, yeah, and, and it's, I suppose being in Lebanon, in Beirut, Lebanon, is certainly tied to that, isn't it? Yes, completely. Um, I, as you may or may not be able to tell from my accent, I'm, I'm from Texas. I'm originally from a small town in East Texas. But I'm a film and cultural theorist. Um, I'm a professor here at the American University of Beirut. I've been here since 2015, where I teach a number of classes on Palestinian cinema, race and media, and that sort of thing. Um, but yes, I mean, my interest in Palestine has been there for a very long time. Um, even growing up in East Texas, because of politics and religion, I was interested in the Middle East. And, uh, for the, you know, basically as an, as an adult, I started to pursue that passion and study Palestine. Um, and the, you know, the broader Middle East in a number of different ways, lived in Turkey for a while. And I eventually got a PhD in the University of California, where I started working on race in Palestine and film and culture. Um, and that's, that's really where the genesis of this book is, um, in my time in California. Okay, great. Um, so can you tell us about the Palestinian idea? What you mean by it? And why is it important for people to know about it? Sure. Well, the Palestinian idea is uh, is just a little phrase that I found in the writings of Edward Said. When I was working at the very beginning stages of my research, I decided to just read as much Edward Said as I could. Edward Said, of course, being the famous late Palestinian academic, who is actually quite traditional. I mean, he was a British literary theorist um, or literary scholar who became very political in the aftermath of the 1967 war in which Israel took control of Jerusalem and the West Bank. And uh, he became most famous for writing the book Orientalism and then a number of a number of books of political essays about Palestine. And occasionally, from some of his earliest writings about Palestine to some of his latest writings before his death, he would occasionally use this phrase, the Palestinian idea, which he just kind of took as a shorthand phrase to describe this harmonious, beautiful future in which all of Palestine's people 
um, be they Jewish, Muslim, Christian, Arab, whatever, could live together in peace and harmony. So it's just kind of like this utopian ideal for the future. And that really animated his entire outlook about Palestine. So the Palestine idea, and I really like this phrase, um, but, you know, I mean, any any beautiful dreams we have of the future, they're not necessarily concrete. There might not necessarily be a way to get there. Um, I, I think our utopian dreams have to have some foothold in the present. And uh, I think in, I, I do. I go through a lot of theorists to think about this, but the best, most radical utopian dreams of the future are the ones that we can already see around us, maybe in fragments, maybe in traces. And I think the Palestinian idea, this idea of equality in Palestine, does already exist in the present. Um, and one of the places we see it is in film, media, and culture. And so my book uses this idea of the Palestinian, the Palestinian idea, the notion of equality in Palestine, equality in the midst of settler colonialist apartheid, and then looks at Palestinian film and media to you know, kind of see little windows of equality in the midst of this otherwise quite hellish landscape. Right, right, and um, and you you begin in your preface to the book. You have a little sort of parable and reflection from Ernst Bloch. Uh, can you share that with us? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, th- th- this is uh, it, this is I write about this exactly the way it occurred on one of my research trips to Palestine. I was walking in Jaffa, and I should say I use the word Palestine to refer not only to the West Bank, not only to Jerusalem, not only to Gaza but also Israel. For me, the whole thing should be considered Palestine. So I was walking in Jaffa on the beach, and it was just kind of a, it almost seems like maybe a stereotypical moment. Um, I noticed uh, I noticed some Muslim kids flying kites, and then there's an Orthodox Jewish family having a picnic, and I heard some Arabic. I saw a secular gay Israeli couple walking a dog. I looked up, and the church bells were ringing. And there's just so much diversity all packed in the middle of Jaffa. Now, Jaffa, of course, was ethnically cleansed. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it was one of the centers of Palestine's Arab population, and it's since become something of a ghetto and heavily gentrified. And I was just struck by the idea that even with over a century of ethnic cleansing, Israel's been unsuccessful. I mean, there's definitely hierarchies and power dynamics. But you can't get away from the diversity. You can't get away from the intermingling in the streets of these different people. And it immediately reminded me of a, a strange parable I had read by Ernst Bloch, also written by his friend Walter Benjamin. Um, it's a parable about what, what will the world look like when the Messiah comes? And uh, a rabbi is asked this question, and the rabbi gives this very cryptic answer. and says that, uh, well, when, when the Messiah comes, it's not that Everything will change. It's just, you know, that bush will stay the same and that rock will stay the same. Um, but everything will just change just a little bit. The rock will stay in place. The bush will stay in place. But everything will just change very slightly. And through the slight change, everything will change. And it just made me realize, like, this is a perfect encapsulation of this strange cryptic story I didn't understand. It's not a question of bulldozing down thousands of buildings or deporting millions of people or anything like that. The people are already there. It's The buildings are already there. It's a question of just a small change that changes the relations between people. The Palestinian idea is already there underneath the, uh, the things that we typically see. We typically see the violence, the bulldozers, the, uh, ethnic, the ethnic cleansing, but just underneath it, the, there are forms of harmonious coexistence that already exist. And so that's kind of my theoretical window into thinking about how the one-state solution is not a future dream. It's a present reality. Um, one state is not you know, a future. One state is a condition. Um, we just, I think our goal is to change Palestine, change the one state from being a, the current wretched one into a, a more a more harmonious. Yeah, and I I know uh, one of the um, in your personal intellectual history, as you yeah. outline in the book, and uh, and it's part of your book as well, the the African American experience and and linking the two. 
and and you have and we we share a mutual admiration for CLR jeans. One of the collections uh, Allison and Busby put together in the eighties was uh, the Future in the Present, which right. is a pretty much the same kind of thing. What you're talking about there, and it's interesting when you're you're talking about that epiphany you had um, walking in Jaffa. It it reminds me a bit of um, there's a kind of saying I've heard about the the United States. Um, with the experience between black and white. And it, uh, it said that in the South, um, whites are against black people in theory, but not in practice. And in the North, it's the opposite. <laughs> in a sense, it's, a, um, it's the, the, this idea that, that uh, the ethnic cleansing you, you, you talk about uh, that w- was to occur and, and this separation uh, is is very much an idea but in practice you 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 can actually see the palestinian idea there so it's really like a shift in perspective isn't it that that's kind of what it is it's it's a shift in your perspective looking at the same thing and and it's a whole new world would you agree no 100 percent. you know I, i actually cite that particular phrase from james in the book um you know one of james's works he talks about how you know the social the socialist revolutionary communist future already exists in the present day practices on the factory floor. And so mm-hmm. that, you know, revolution is less creating something new out of nothing than just, just uncovering those tendencies that already exist. Um, you know, I'm from, as I said, I'm from East Texas. I grew up in a very white supremacist conservative environment. Um, I was surrounded by these different images and ghosts in some case, not necessarily ghosts, but still living um, emblems of Jim Crow and racist apartheid in the United States. And years later, when I was living in the Middle East and starting to get very comfortable talking about Palestine or, or other different minority groups in the Middle East, um, the Kurds and Turkey, for instance, I realized I hadn't really spent a lot of time delving into my own country's racial hierarchy history. Um, it started with just reading Malcolm X and Bell Hooks. But eventually, when I was a grad student, I enrolled in a course with Cedric Robinson, the late Cedric Robinson, author of Black Marxism. Mm-hmm. And this was the early 2011 graduate seminar, Cedric Robinson. So as I'm going through Black, um, Black Marxism and the other books of that course, C.L.R. James and the Black Jacobins, W.B. Du Bois, Black Reconstruction, this is 2011. So on the other side of the the globe, we have the revolution taking place in the Middle East, Tunisia, mm-hmm. Egypt, other countries. And so I'm thinking about black radicalism. At the same time, I'm interested in freedom movements in the Arab world. And that coming together of black radical tradition, black radical thought with freedom movements in the Middle East, you know, it's, it's fundamental to the premise of my book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, definitely. And I... W- one of the central ideas you have um, is about uh, colonization. And, and I mean, this relates directly to the sort of um, black um, discourse and, and, and political and cultural discourse in the United States. But that colonization is not just a, a physical, a military, and economic phenomenon, but a, a cultural one, a psychological one. I mean, colonizing people's minds can you elaborate on that for us, please? Sure. I mean, <clears throat> I'm, I'm a bit allergic to some of the discourse that just assumes any particular identity is automatically radical. I mean, I think the history of Zionism is really something to be studied. Um, Theodor Herzl and the early European Zionists rejected European anti-Semitism, but their rejection ended up replicating the very structures and frameworks that they claimed to be contesting, the, the same ethno, the same ethno-national rigid framework for thinking through identity. Um, and then they just turned the Palestinians into the new Jews in some ways. I think when it comes to colonization and the Palestinians, one must be really careful because it's very possible that, you know, should Palestinians win the revolution, they could, without even needing to, replicate some of the, the same frameworks, some of the same forms of oppression that they claim to be contesting in the present. 
Um, so mm-hmm. I deal with that in my book, and you know, a lot of thinking and thought about this from Franz Fanon to Fred Moten to C.L.R. James, just the idea that you know, no, the, the the fight against the fight against colonialism is not just a fight against the European colonists. It's also a fight against the colonizer from within. Or in the case of Palestinians, the fight is not only against the Zionists from without. The fight's also from the Zionists within. The ways that Zionism has been internalized, the ways that Zionism has attempted, and in some cases successfully, colonized the Palestinian imagination. Um, and so I talk quite a bit about that and, and the ways that Palestinians just, you know, Palestinian resistance, I don't think in and of itself is necessarily radical or, or even necessarily anti-Zionist. Um, so we shouldn't, we shouldn't just assume because a, a Palestinian film is produced by Palestinians, it's automatically radical or because a Palestinian act of resistance, because it's Palestinian, it's automatically revolutionary. We should think really hard about the ways that it can um, transcend Zionism and point us towards that that Palestinian idea that I that I already mentioned. Could you uh, elaborate a bit on um, what you mean by um, or in what ways the Palestinian mind is colonized? Because let's say let's compare it with the African American experience. Um, like for instance, Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam, uh, you know, have a hugely you know elaborate discourse on you know the way you know black people have, have you know worshipped you know white gods and you know and just have a negative perception of Africa of their own heritage, and that you know their their whole minds have been twisted by the experience of of living in a white man's country and and so so they have that kind of um critique but i i don't think that could necessarily be you know transposed to the palestinian experience because um the palestinians have been there for thousands of years and it, so it, it's a different um historical um you know process so so can you kind of explain the parallel by what you mean yeah i mean i think the in, most obvious the most obvious answer would be just the way that Zionism has driven a wedge between Jew and Arab. And that in the same right. way we think of Christian Arabs, Christian Palestinians, and Muslim Arabs and Muslim Palestinians as being, you know, they're all Arab, they're all Palestinian. There was a place for Arab Jews or even Palestinian Jews. Zionism has driven that wedge and worked very, very hard to um, make that whole history um, of Arab Jewish civilization disappear. Even even at the point of language, like um, if you read some textbooks and some discussions of the language that Arab Jews speak, which is Arabic, they call it Judeo-Arabic. It's not actually a different language. They've just given it a different name to further the separation between Jewish speakers of Arabic and non-Jewish speakers of Arabic. So, you know, when you look at Palestinian discourse today, um, in, in so far, to the degree that Palestinians reject the Jews as being different as part of Israel, they are, I think, accepting the divisions that Zionism introduced to the, to the region. Um, other concrete examples I briefly discussed in my book, for instance, the, uh, one of the, one of the major priests in Nazareth, a man by the name of Gabriel Nadav. I mean, he, he says that we aren't Palestinians anymore. We should consider ourselves to be Zionists and, you know, work for the state of Israel. So I don't think it's a majority position within Palestine, but you can see that within Palestinian society, there are different ways that Zionism has colonized the imagination. Um, and I think it's, uh, um, I think just accepting Palestinian resistance or the Palestinian you know, Palestinian works of art as automatically being anti-Zionist would be a mistake. Um, yeah, yeah, that that's interesting. Um, it's a good example. It reminds me of even like the differences between Hindi and Urdu languages, uh, and 
it's basically the same when you hear it, but right. you know, they, they're written different scripts. I mean, the Hindi speakers and Urdu speakers mutually understand each other, you know, but uh, it, it's written as a, one is Muslim and one is Hindu and one is from Pakistan and the other is from uh, India. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's this artificial distinction because, yeah, be, because of the, of the, the frameworks of, of division in that context. Yeah. That, that's uh, very, very interesting there. Right. And uh, yeah. And so you, you're uh, in, in terms of the, the politics um, uh, you, let's see, well, your book is not so much about politics. It's, it's about um, the, I, about film, media, etc. And uh, before we get into some of the details of it, because it is very interesting, um, you, you make a, you, you have a couple of points you raise. One is the sort of debate about culture and politics and cultural politics and is everything political and if everything is political, then nothing is. And then you, you have, um, you, you make a distinction between being anti-identitarian uh, as distinct from being anti-identity. But can you explore and unpack some of those issues for us? Sure. Sure. Well, <clears throat> In thinking through my notion of the Palestinian idea, um, which, again, I, I get the term in the general vision of society, I theoretically borrow from two other major thinkers. One is the French philosopher Jacques Rancière, and the other one is my late professor, Cedric Robinson, the theorist of the Black Lives Tradition. And what all these three thinkers, Saïd, Rancière, and Robinson, were writing about very, very different movements and different peoples, but I think theoretically there's a lot of overlap in that, uh, and, and which can be seen in the way they view the politics and culture. Um, I think traditionally people have you know, drawn a big separation between politics and culture. Politics is that's the ballot box, that's legislative bodies, it's political speeches, you know, that's, that's proper politics. In the case of Palestine, it's the negotiation table or the battlefield, um, the United Nations, these kinds of things. But, and, and then culture would just be secondary to that. Uh, culture could be folk songs, dancing, cuisine, whatever. It might be interesting, but it's not necessarily political. And, and I totally reject this, this division. In fact, I think if you're interested, as I am, in radical, Emancipatory politics, um, truly, truly liberatory politics. The place to look isn't the ballot box. The place is not to, the place to look isn't countless negotiation, but it's actually in culture. It's you know it's it's in the freedom songs that are sung. It's in the graffiti that announces the end of apartheid. It's in film. It's in media. Um, and so the idea that culture is secondary to politics for me is actually almost the opposite of reality. If you're really interested in radical politics, the place to look is culture. That doesn't mean that all culture is radically political. It doesn't even mean that most of it is. But um, dreams of freedom, radical visions of another world, they don't arise out of acts of legislation or speeches by corrupt leaders. They come from the street. They come from poetry and art film and media. Um, and so all the think thinkers I draw from really see culture as, as as exactly this, as this place where we can start to think of alternatives to the existing world. And start yeah, it's a very Jadian point of view, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, yeah, Saeed, Robinson, Apancia, they all mm. really taught me this, this way of looking at culture. Yeah, yeah. And um, and could you just explain a little bit about your um, your concern uh, to develop an anti-identitarian um, no. perspective without being anti-identity? Yeah. So, I mean, there's this phrase I mentioned in my book. It's Saeed mentioned it many times in cultural and uh, in his book uh, Culture and Imperialism, several other places as well. He gets it, I think, indirectly from C.L.R. James, but yeah. it's a it's a it's a poem by Aimee Césaire, 
And there's mm-hmm. a phrase where he says, there's a place for us all at the rendezvous of victory. And, well, I don't doubt that we all come to the table mm-hmm. with our, our own baggage, our own circumstances, our own, our own class background, racial, sexual, gender differences. Um, I think there is, I think there is a place for us at that table. There is a place for all of us in the revolution, um, despite those differences. And that's part of Saeed's vision, and I, I very much agree with it. It's, uh, it's the idea that even though there are problems and forms of oppression that are, that are about identity, I don't think the solution means partaking in yet even more identity. I think the solution has to find a way to transcend that identity. And in the case of Palestine, it means simply that. Any kind of solution to Palestine that is aggressively and rigidly Muslim or aggressively and and, uh, rigidly Christian or or even aggressively and rigidly Arab is ultimately going to cause more problems down the line. I think think there's a certain ecumenical universalism in the Palestinian idea that must be preserved at all, um, at all costs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, I guess this is a theoretically, you know, it, it's a recurring theme in, in so many struggles, isn't it? I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, Zionism, uh, how, you know, in fighting anti Semitism in Europe, then it in turn became an oppressive uh, structure of power, and that, um, uh, that there's always this danger that in, in fighting oppression, um, you merely reproduce. The, the structures of oppression, even if the oppressors and the oppressed change places. You know, and, um, and that, I, I suppose, things like Gandhian nonviolence or, or um, you know, Martin Luther King's um, uh, nonviolence struggle was um, tr- tried to change the terms of those, uh, of, of the discourse and, and the battle itself in that way. I mean, and then, you know, I suppose, um, Radical communist um, analyses also kind of have that thing where they talk about, you know, you have to overthrow the, the entire material structure of society. And, uh, and, and this, um, this ecumenical vision, which you say, uh, is, is part of, you know, it's part of the Palestinian idea. It exists. It's not something you're just making up theoretically that you wish could happen, um, but it's something you're seeing in film. And that's really sort of the, the, um, the bulk of your book, isn't it? Yes. Uh, and, and it's important for me to say, like, again, <clears throat> as I didn't make any of this up. It's, this isn't just me sitting from afar s- saying what the Palestinians should do. This is me identifying something that's existed within Palestinian discourse for a very long time. You know, a lot of Americans, uh, people in the West, they, they, they look at the history of Israel and Palestine, and they, they have a very false view. They, they see like an offer that was put before the Palestinians and Israelis to partition the land. And when the Palestinians largely rejected that, and the Israelis accepted it, I think a lot of Americans think this is like some form of anti-Jewishness or some form of anti-Semitism on the part of the Arabs. But it was actually a call to share the land. The idea, the idea from, from the early 20th century amongst the Palestinians wasn't to just reject completely the arrival of Jews, but it was to reject the idea of settling the land and colonizing it and separating it. The Palestinian idea, this ecumenical vision, is a Palestinian idea. It's not my idea, it's a Palestinian idea. And it's existed at least as long as Zionism itself has existed, perhaps even longer. Um, so yeah, I just want to make that point that yeah. this, this notion is old. And yes, yeah. and, go ahead. No, no, I, I, and I, I think it's important to to explore. I mean, now this is this kind of takes us a little way uh, from you know from the the heart of the content of your book, but it's an important idea to explore. You know, the 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 idea that in Palestine, Israel, the a single state, some somehow that's wrong, and what is right is having segregated, separate, I you know, lands and identities. You know, it it's amazing. I think that you know, um, 
liberal Western secular states, um, you know, promote this idea when they would not accept it in their own countries. Like, you know, they, they think the nation of Islam are, you know, totally beyond the pale for suggesting that African-Americans should have their own homes or, you know, yet, you know, they would say in Iraq, the Sunnis and the Shiites and the Kurds should be separate. It's, um, it's, what, what's your explanation for, for that almost schizophrenia in terms of, uh, you know, solutions to ethnic problems? Um, <laughs> I don't know that I have an explanation for you. Yeah. But, but it is striking how some of the discourse in Israel, it almost seems like copy-paste from Jim Crow. Like even when Ehud Barak, Ehud Barak, who, as you'll recall, was seen as kind of a liberal figure. I mean, he took over the reins after Netanyahu during the Oslo and he was seen as being a more moderate Zionist voice. His his campaign slogan was "Us here, them there." <laughs> One of his campaign yeah. slogans was "Explicit segregation." Um, and it, it, I, I think this kind of this impulse towards segregation and separation is an extremely problematic one. Um, to quote Franz Fanon, there is nothing ontological about separation. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a very oppressive and violent, uh, ideal. And, um, unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the Palestinian leadership bought into it during the 90s, particularly the Yasser Arafat. And, mm-hmm. um, I think that discourse is going away more and more. Yeah, it's just such a nonsensical solution. Now, one thing is, like, people who have never been to Palestine, it's all abstract. They don't realize how small the land is and how interconnected it is. But when you go there and you see it, it's it's just a loop. Just even the idea of of really carving out two separate states in that little piece of land is just absolutely ludicrous. Um, and, And you know, people like me, people who hold on to the Palestinian idea, the idea of one democratic state for everybody, we might be called the utopians and the dreamers, but to be perfectly honest, the idea of carving up two separate states, that's the crazy fantastical dream. That's the fairy tale. I'm the realist. You know, people like me are yeah. much more realistic. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's that's very, very... Uh... That, that's very true. I mean, um, the, the way people have have accepted this, um, you know, this idea of separating people that you know that has to be done with such force, with such brutality, and as you say, fails in practice. You know, um, yeah, uh, yet that is seen as the um, the realistic uh, option. Right now, now the uh, theoretically, it, it is kind of. Um, uh, I, I, it, it's it, it floats between the, the, this you know the idea of of anti-identitarian and and anti-identity or, or you know pro-identity in in the sense that you you don't want to erase um, people's identities yet at the same time you don't want to push for a, a hard segregation either right so it, it's um it's 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 a fine line to walk sometimes and it's interesting um you you raise the question in terms of palestinian films itself and you said can a palestinian cinema even be even be said to exist yeah. can you elaborate on that yeah sure so so my book just background uh, this idea that i already laid out palestinian idea the idea that there's a quality already in the present i take that as like a jumping off point to look at a range of media forms and practices and also a range of topics. So each chapter looks at a different media, a different film or a different text with a different question in mind, like what is Palestinian identity? How do we conceive of Palestinian resistance? How do we understand notions of time in Palestine? Or how do we think of global solidarity? 
But all of it's done through the prism of equality in the present, Palestinian idea. So the chapter where I talk about Palestinian identity, that's the one where I really confront um, and, and you know document Palestinian cinema. Palestinian cinema's got a long history. It's it started even before Israel was founded. You had a, a local Palestinian guy, and I believe in Jaffa, who, who bought a camera and started making like reels, little short documentary reels of visiting dignitaries and whatnot. Started a film studio. But in 48, with the Nakba, the dispossession of Palestinians of all of Palestine, he ended up fleeing to Beirut. And he was discovered years and years later um, working as a plumber in the Shatila refugee camp. So, in a sense, you know, the, the father of Palestinian cinema was, you know, after, after the Nakba, his entire practice of filmmaking was, was destroyed. So, despite this whole, this whole history of Palestinian cinema, there is a lingering question, and that question is, does Palestinian cinema even exist? When, uh, Could, uh, it, and just a, a sort of uh, detailed, more factual uh, question about this thing. Um, like, are, are there, like, Palestinian, is, is there a, a network or an infrastructure for showing Palestinian films? I'll just tell you, this morning I, I was talking about that in Trinidad and Tobago here on the radio, and, and, and Although we have Trinidadian filmmakers, theaters don't really, you know, cinemas don't really play the, the movies. You don't see it on TV. There's no network to even develop such an industry. What about for um, the Palestinians? Is there a place where Palestinians can look at Palestinian films? Is it that, um, you know, industry in that sense? Or are they flooded by Arabic language films from other countries? For yeah, I mean... The answer is yes and no. I mean, mm -hmm. there is no centralized, fully developed, functioning film industry at all. There are right. a lot of grassroots and independent initiatives and companies trying to promote and trying to help, um, you know, the, the development of Palestinian film. And there's a, there's a lot of different uh, film festivals throughout the world that are dedicated to Palestinian film in, in France. Right. And, and even in Houston, Texas, there's an annual Palestinian film festival. Mm. Um, so when you say do Palestinians, you know, watch these films, and part of the problem is which Palestinians are we talking about? Um, you right. know, the pa Palestinians in, in Gaza don't, there's no cinemas in Gaza. Right? Right. There, there are no cinemas at all. Um, in the West Bank, there's only a small handful, and they struggle to stay open, and they often just show whatever, you know, recent Hollywood films they can get their hands on. Mm -hmm. One of the main ways people watch these films is you see the pirated, pirated DVDs and internet and that kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. And then you have the Palestinians who have Israeli citizenships, the Palestinians who stayed behind during the Nakba and are now Israeli passport holders and they speak Hebrew. And they have access to Israeli funds, which is controversial. Um, right. They, they can, because they're tax-paying Israelis, they have access to those Israeli funds. But if they take those funds, a lot of Palestinians will, you know, they're not interested in their films because they're seen as Israeli. So there's all kinds of dilemmas like this. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting, uh, the parallel with, um, let's say, the West Indies and authors, for example. People like C.L.R. James or even V.S. Naipaul or whatnot, where, um, you know, in many you know, in many cases, the audiences, the bulk of the readers are not. West Indians, you know, um, it's, it's, it's foreigners. So, so that affects the way you write, you know? So I was just wondering how, how that affects some um, Palestinian filmmakers, you know, um, who, who is yeah, their and, audience have in mind? And, you know, and, a lot of the Palestinian, a lot of the Palestinian filmmakers I know of, I mean, they don't necessarily see themselves as only making films for the West. I mean, you have that genre of Palestinian film that's made primarily for Americans, primarily for Europeans. But that's, that's certainly not all Palestinian filmmakers. A lot of them are meant for the Palestinian diaspora. They're meant for Arab audiences. They, they, they circulated all the major Arab capitals and play at local Arab cinemas. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's difficult. I, I don't think it's possible to say that Palestinian filmmaking is, is meant for only one audience. I mean, it circulates globally and it, it circulates amongst Palestinians. Yeah, and, and these are the fascinating things when you start to look at culture and politics that uh, 
so many of the boundaries that we may neatly have in political discourse, just in culture, they they are meaningless. Yeah, yeah especially the way the the way cultural objects, you know, can go between countries and places and times and whatnot. Yeah, and yeah, and and speaking of time, and you mentioned it just now. It's I think it's an interesting and very important concept. The idea of Palestinian time. I mean, you you write a lot about it and speak a lot about it in your book. Can you just briefly, um, you know, get into that for us here? Yeah, I mean, people talk about the way that Israel steals Palestinian land all the time. We we talk about it. Palestine has been colonized, settlements are being built, walls are being built, roads are being built. But I thought it was important to talk about how it's not only the land that's being colonized, it's also time. And, and I mean that in several different ways. Uh, first of all, it's just Israel is stealing time in the sense that they project the Palestinians into the past. And they just got classical European anthropological discourse. They're the native primitives who exist in some timeless you know, barbaric age. Meanwhile, the Israelis see themselves as being fast-paced and modern and living in the present. So there's that kind of discursive projection of the Palestinians in the past. A second way that, that their time is colonized is through all the all the different ways that Israel has made Palestinian life slow down. You have to wait at checkpoints. Um, don't necessarily know if you're going to get permission to cross through a particular gate or a particular border. Life is a lot slower if you're in the West Bank than if you're in Tel Aviv. Um, and then the, the third and final way that I see how Israel has colonized Palestinian time has to do with the Nakba itself, which is with the 1947-1948 um, destruction of Palestine, the raising of more than 400 villages, the the uh, deportation of some 700,000 Palestinians. It's like time itself stopped. And lots of Palestinians talk about this. They talk about how it, it's, with that event, time never continued. The calendar just stopped on that day. And people, even now, all these years later, you know, sometimes live in the mentality as if the Nakba is, is still ongoing. So, yeah. you know, to make us, in a nutshell, I describe these two different ways that Israel colonizes time, but then I ask the question, is there a form of Palestine time? Of something, is there a Palestinian clock that cannot be adequately captured by Zionism? Um, and that's like this more utopian notion of the future. Ways of thinking, um, ways of thinking through Zionist, Zionist forms of time. And, and thinking about the future already in the present. And this is a particularly the chapter where I draw on your hero, C.L.R. James, and several other thinkers to you know conceive of this Palestinian time, which I then discover in this documentary, this beautiful documentary um, called My Love Awaits Me by the Sea, by the Palestinian director, Maes Darwaza, which uh, it, it's, it's a beautiful documentary. There's so many documentaries about Palestine that concentrate on the oppression, concentrate on the stealing of land and these kinds of things. But, this documentary is really about Palestinian dreams and how do Palestinians in the present continue to nurture utopian dreams about the future. Um, and so I see this documentary as, you know, kind of expressing this future already in the present. Right, right. Now, you, you know, you mentioned that film, My Love Awakened by the Sea. Um, for our listeners, um, you know, and, and I suspect the vast majority of the listeners, I would have to include myself among them, you know, not familiar, not a connoisseur of, of Palestinian cinema. You know, what what are some of the more important um, Palestinian films, in your opinion, and why are they important? Okay, so in the there's four films I discuss in detail in my book. So two of them are by a Bethlehem filmmaker named Andrew Jasser. One's called Salt of the Sea. One's called When I Saw You. And I believe they're both available streaming on different sites like Netflix. They're easy to get, they're easy to get your hands on. The third one that I talked about is My Love Awaits Me by the Sea. And as far as I know, that one has not been distributed. That one's a little bit more difficult to find. It's a festival film. And then the fourth one I talked about in detail is Paradise Now, which was the first Palestinian film 
to get um, shortlisted for an Oscar in Best Foreign Language Film. It's not my favorite film I discuss in my book, but it is still very significant. And, and when are these films made? Like what um, years? They are all, I think the most recent of that bunch is probably, if I remember the date correctly, is When I Saw You, which is, I think, from 2013, 2014. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, Palestinian film is, several different authors have put it into four different periods um, of, of filmmaking. Um, and the most current period is basically from the 80s till today, which is the period of independent filmmaking. It's, it's not financed by any state or not financed by any particular political party, but often through European funds, American funds, sometimes funds from the uh, rich Arab states in the Gulf, and they're, they're made independently. And I have to say, like, considering all of the obstacles and problems that Palestinian maker, filmmakers confront, uh, they do a really good job. Palestinian filmmaking has reached something of a stride in recent years, and there's been a number of really high-quality films produced in the past decade. Right, right. And uh, in, in, in terms of your talking, when we were talking about Palestinian time and then I, I suppose how it's treated uh, in these films um, you, you explore, I, I think the, the way that most people um, might think of it when you, you first mention it, and, and it's what I thought about, is you know, the contestation over history, you know, like so when when does time begin? Is it from the Bible and Moses or, or is it from something more um, you know, historical like 1948? And the, you know, what, what, what are the, the important points in this timeline? You know, so, so, you know, for the Zion, in the Zionist imaginary, of course, the, the Holocaust is, is, you know, the major uh, event. Um, and whereas in a Palestinian timeline, um, it, it might be, but in a, in a very different way. Uh, yeah. it, so the, the, these th- do these things um, feature um, very prominently in the films you mentioned? Um, well, the Nakba is always kind of lurking in the background. Even if it's not directly mentioned, it's, it's, it's hinted about. Um, the Nakba is always there. Um, in fact, one of the films I, I discussed, Salt of the Sea, it's a film set in the present, but as I argue, there's traces of the Nakba are everywhere. Um, she's, the main character is riding a bus, and she's looking out at all the rocks that aren't just rocks, of course. They're the remains of depopulated villages. So there's a way in which the Nakba just permeates the film. And, and that's, mm-hmm. that's true for a lot of Palestinian films. There's a kind of a reminder of 1948. As this this moment where the entire the entire Palestinian nation went under complete tragedy um, as a result of Zionist colonialism. Right, right. Now, and well, this is interesting too, and it's it's one of the the themes you you talk about in depth in your book about visibility, Palestinian visibility, and and you make an important um, you know observation for it. There are some people who argue that the Palestinians are invisible in the global media landscape, but others suggest that they're hyper-visible, that you always see them. Uh, and, and then you take off from there. So could you just um, elaborate a bit on that? Because it, it's an interesting observation. Yeah, I just, when I was researching this chapter, I found it, I found it interesting how people on both sides of the aisle, people who are very pro-Palestinian, people who are very Zionist, Sometimes they would see the Palestinians as being invisible, and sometimes they would say they're, they're hyper-visible, they're everywhere. Um, and so that whole debate about how, you know, Palestinian media presence, I, I think is a bit faulty. Because sometimes you have this notion where it's like the Palestinians have been missing from global areas. And so our goal, as, either as Palestinians or people who sympathize with the Palestinians, our goal is to restore them to global media narratives. But that's false. Because the Palestinians are often in global media narratives. Their image mm-hmm. might not be controlled by the Palestinians. They might be depicted as bloodthirsty terrorists. They might be treated to like an orientalist gay. But, but visibility alone doesn't necessarily guarantee a correct politics. Well, in some global narratives, the Palestinians are hyper-present. They're there. 
But the Palestinians don't necessarily have control over those images. They're there, but they're there only as terrorists. It's like, right. you know, the night, Orientalist nightmares about what Palestinians are. So it just struck me that it's, it's I don't think our right attitude or our right goal should be just putting Palestinians in a media narrative. Their presence alone does not guarantee correct politics or radical politics. So the question isn't visual, visibility so much. The question is visuality. The question is not, mm-hmm. are the Palestinians seen? The question is, how are they seen? And so yeah. um, I think these films are interesting because it's not just about putting Palestinians on the screen. It's about how they put the Palestinians on the screen and how they tell their stories. Yeah, 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 definitely. And, and, um, and, and I suppose a, a lot of it and a lot of the power of film and culture is, is when it uh, humanizes people who have been, you know, put in a political discourse of caricature. And, sure. and, yeah. And, yes, and yes, I, but I still have hesitations with that because, you know, my feeling is if, if your goal, let's say your goal, you're a Palestinian filmmaker, you, you want to help the Palestinians out, and you're concerned with Western audiences. And so your goal is to humanize the Palestinians. So my problem is, if somebody doesn't think you're human, I'm not sure a film is going to change their mind. <laughs> like, that's a pretty hard thing to get a, a Western Orientalist racist to suddenly see you as human. So, and then, best case scenario, at the end of the film, you've, you've only proven that Palestinians are human. So I think the better approach, and this is something that Anne-Marie Jassir talks about in some of her interviews, is to start from the premise that Palestinians are human. You don't have to prove it. Just start. Just assert. Yeah. Assert that they're human. And then you have that humanity of the Palestinians, but then you can actually have much more interesting stories that address a lot more issues. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So where, where you can now start to identify the struggles, the problems, and whatever as as something that you could put yourself in, right. in their shoes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, and what, you know, an interesting thing I'd like to, a last uh, point that you, you have in your book, your sort of last, uh, if you want to call it meditation, uh, about the the African-American struggle, mm-hmm. uh, linking with the um, black, Palest- with the Palestinian struggle, especially now with the George Floyd and the um, uh, uh, um, Black Lives Matter movement and what's going on worldwide, uh, starting in the States, being the epicenter there. Um, it, it's very, there, there are so many issues there, um, you know, about the, the similarities between the struggles, the differences, and, and, and then even the way African Americans have used the discourse of Zionism uh, in their own struggle. And then, but then you have, you know, traditions like the black Muslims and then as you point, Stokely Carmichael and, and the kind of anti-colonial tradition, um, which is, which is another strand, uh, that have, you know, then identify with the, the Palestinians and then among, in, within the, you know, American debate, you, you've had nationalists who, who want a separate piece of, of land and then people who are, I suppose, integrationists, if, if you want to put it that way. And then I, I think there's another issue too of people on the outside looking in, how they might caricature the, um, the, that struggle in the United States and, and maybe not understand all the nuances. So how, how do all these things um, play in Palestinian film? Yeah. Well, okay. So, you know, I, I was writing this book in, I started really writing it around 2014, 2015. And this was right around the time of the Michael Brown protests, you know, the beginnings right. of Hands Up, Don't Shoot. And also um, the summer of 2014, when Israel just dropped, I think, six tons of bombs on the Gaza Strip, killing yeah. some 2,000 people, if I'm not mistaken. And so at that time, there were a lot of people on both sides of the Atlantic who were demonstrating solidarity with each other. You had Palestinian protesters um, tweeting their support for the Black Lives Matter movement and vice versa. And there was suddenly a lot of attention to this black, the potential of black Palestinian solidarity. We're seeing it again now with George Floyd. Several books were written. Angela Davis wrote a book about it. Alex Lee and different people wrote 
these books about black Palestinian solidarity. And uh, as somebody who's very interested in those kind of racial linkages, I wanted to have a chapter specifically about it, which I do. It's, it's my last chapter. But I kind of wanted the entire book to be influenced by Black Craftsman and Solidarity. So even though the last chapter is the only book that's explicitly about it, you have black radical voices throughout the text. You know, whether yeah. it's Cedric Robinson or, um, you know, different places where I discuss Huey Newton and the Black Panther Party, just, you know, other, other authors and other movements and figures. And, and I tried to think to some degree what does Palestinian film and media look like if we view it through the lens of the black radical tradition. Um, obviously, there's all kinds of issues with how do people demonstrate solidarity? Why do they demonstrate solidarity? Um, there's, there's problematic areas in which one person might not truly understand the other's struggle completely. And as you say, a lot of the history of 20th century, um, many black activists, some of the most prominent ones, from Marcus Garvey to W.B. Du Bois, um, to Martin Luther King identified to some degree with Zionism. They, they saw the Jews as comprising a global diaspora of an oppressed minority, and they saw themselves in the same light. They used the same biblical language. But really beginning in the 60s, 50s and the 60s, you see this turn in black discourse towards anti-colonialism and solidarity with uh, black liberation struggle. So I discussed that whole history and uh, and I don't look at so many films in this chapter. I look at a few different media objects. I look at YouTube videos, some hip hop music. I analyze a video, a hip hop video by um, an artist named uh, Jaziri X from from Pennsylvania, um, and uh, uh, racial discourse. I, I I spent a couple of weeks on a bus in the West Bank with a bunch of performers who were doing improvisational theater. I look at some of their performances. And so I'm just trying to think about how this black this black Palestinian solidarity um, informs um, notions of equality and resistance in uh, in Palestine today yeah yeah and then I mean it it, it um, gets into you know, the thorny questions of anti-semitism and and then how um, you know both you know um, pro-palestinian movements and um, Black movements that uh, express solidarity with the Palestinians are characterized as being uh, anti-Semitic, and 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 some aspects sometimes, frankly, are anti-Semitic. Um, you know, the, the, this is, I think, probably where um, your your concerns about um, you know reproducing structures of oppression. Um, and I mean, Said expressed it himself. Um, you know, the, 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 this is where they they are live and very relevant. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think if anybody, but first of all, <clears throat> I think there's two kinds of people in this world who collapse the state of Israel with all of world Jewry, and those are Zionists who want Israel to stand for all Jews. And those are anti-Semites who reject all Jews and the state of Israel. I mean, the only yeah. appropriate way to approach the state of Israel is to see it is not a stand-in for all of the world's Jews. Jews are a complicated, diverse people like any other people group. And the fight against anti-Semitism and the fight against anti-black racism and the fight against settler colonialist oppression in Israel should all go hand in hand. Um, that doesn't mean it always happens that way, but it's an ideal and a goal we should always have at the forefront of our minds. The fight against anti-Semitism should go hand in hand with the fight against Zionism. Yeah, yeah they were born absolutely. of the same. They were born of the same fruit. I mean, they both came out of 19th century Europe, and uh, it's it's that same rigid identitarian hierarchy that is still haunting us to this day. Absolutely. Uh, so in in trying to uh, wrap this up, I know I've kept you uh, a little while now. We've uh, passed an hour mark. Um, where do you see the Palestinian idea and the Palestinian struggle going? We've entered dark times. <laughs> <laughs> we I mean, really have. We really have. And, you know, I wrote a lot of this book was written 
not because I thought the Palestinian revolution was just around the corner. I mean, I've, I've never predicted, you know, the future. I don't have a crystal ball, but mm-hmm. I have a sense that there is this underlying, this underlying dynamic that Zionism has been unable to destroy. Um, but nevertheless, I wrote this, you know, kind of post 2011 during the kind of euphoric moment when it just seemed like so many different things were possible. I don't, I don't know if I would have had the strength to write it the same way today, just because the weight of the oppression of the world, not only in Israel, Palestine, but everywhere else, is so heavy these days. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I never thought the as as much as I criticize Israel and the U.S. government. I didn't realize they would be annexing the West Bank to the degree that they are currently. I didn't realize the U.S. government was on the verge of declaring Jerusalem the capital. I didn't realize yeah. they were going to, like here at the American University of Beirut, um, there are several Palestinian students who are on a U.S. scholarship. Last semester, they were called in by the U.S. embassy and said they're going to stop paying their scholarship. So it's just like on even these little small levels, the U.S. Wow. government is waging war against the Palestinians. And so things look really bleak and really dire. Um, but the positive message is it's been bleak and dire before, and Zionism yeah. has still been unable to win. It has been unable to fully colonize the Palestinian people, and I don't think it will anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. And I guess it, it's kind of, um, you know, uh, I, I would, you know, take it as a sort of Jamesian view of history. It's not neat and linear going forward. There, you know, it goes forward, it goes back, and 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 the the culture and the politics um, will sometimes get very much out of sync. I mean, you the the idea of the Palestinian. I mean, the Palestinian idea that you're talking about, the utopian idea as mm-hmm. expressed in the culture. You know, I I suppose that at certain more hopeful times, it it is in sync with the way the politics are going. But uh, very often, um, sometimes that utopian idea will be out of step with what the political struggle is on the ground. Well, I mean, the strange, the, the, the strange ironic thing is the, the Israelis have been doing all, everything they can to make a two-state solution impossible. They have built so much infrastructure. It's all apartheid infrastructure, roads for Jews only, settlements for Jews only. It's atrocious mm-hmm. and it's apartheid. But they are mm-hmm. making a one, you know, they're making it obvious to everyone that one state is the only way to go. It's just a question of transforming that one state from a racist apartheid state, which it currently is, to a simple democratic binational state. As, the, as they used to say in South Africa, you know, one person, one vote. That's, we're not that far off from that being the battle cry in Palestine. And that one small little change, to re- return to Ernst Bloch, that one small little change will transform everything. It will be a revolution. So we, sh- we shall see. Maybe they're digging their own grave by acting so aggressively. Yeah, yeah. That, that would be one of the um, beautiful ironies of history, wouldn't it? Hopefully. So what, what message would you like to leave your readers with after they go through your book? Well, you know, I mean, I'm just trying to hint at this this idea of the Palestinian idea. Like, I don't, it's not an encyclopedic work. But yeah. I just, when I go to the library and, and or when I go to the bookstore and I look at what's being published on Palestine, and it's all, there's a lot of wonderful, good works being published. But it bothers me how much the authors are focused on Zionism's victories, whether it's about the Nakba or about the, the settlements, it's always about Zionism's victories. And I think it's an insult to Palestine to limit Palestine to the history of Israel's victories. I think we really need to recenter our minds and our attention on Palestinian liberation. And Palestinian liberation uh, is real. It's, It's every bit as real as Israeli oppression. So that's what I would like to contribute, I think, more than anything to, to Palestine studies, re- reminding us that Palestinian liberation is not just some fairy tale dream. It's something that's materially real in the cracks and crevices of the present order. And um, I would like to see more people take it um, seriously and not just as a pipe dream. Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent perspective. And it's something that could be... Um uh, transposed into many other contexts as well. And instead of looking at being defeatist in the face of power, see 
see how the alternative uh, utopian futures are actually existing now. And, and yeah, you, you've done a uh, really good job with that. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for this interview. It's been really informative and enjoyable. Pleasure was all mine. I really appreciate it. Once again, the book is The Palestinian Idea, Film, Media, and the Radical Imagination. And we've been speaking to the author, Greg Burris. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. That's all for Politics and Polemics this week. If you like this, remember to check out my other podcast, Independent Thought and Freedom, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, if you are an academic and want to get heard nationally, check out my free training at becomeapublicintellectual.com. Thanks, and see you next week.